And so I would like to welcome you to Sardis Baptist Church, and I'm glad that everybody has joined us this morning. Today we continue our Advent series, and it's called The Road to Bethlehem Leads to Calvary. And the purpose of this series is to help us see how the birth of Jesus Christ fits into the grandeur of God's plan to provide salvation for all mankind who would place their faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. We often get so focused on the child in the manger that we forget there's a really big plan. God has a plan. And as I said last week, we don't know how to use maps anymore, do we? Most of us, when we uh, use our cell phones, we just put in the address and we have a voice come on and we listen to where it tells us and we really put a whole lot of faith and trust that that is right, especially if you're not going to a place that you're familiar with. But when I was growing up and as Kathy and I were raising our kids, we would lay out our trips on a map. We would put it out on the table and we would uh, look at the map and lay out each leg and as the trip became more and more Uh, laid out, we could see it from beginning to end. It was good. It was fun to see where we were going to go and the options that we could take and what different roads we could take. And we enjoyed laying that map out. Well, God has laid out from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, the meaning of Christmas, the salvation of mankind through His Son. And we need to really back up at times, and look at how God has done this, like Kathy and I would do laying out our trip on a roadmap. It's important that we see the big picture because it brings us to a point of greater worship of God when we see the splendor of His plan uh, throughout time. We see how the road to Bethlehem leads to Calvary, which then leads to the resurrection which ultimately leads to the glory of eternity with our Savior Jesus Christ in heaven. It encompasses all of that. When we come to Christmas, we are celebrating one part of that plan, and we also need to back up and worship God for the whole idea that He wanted to save us, and He chose His Son to do that. And that will bring so much joy to our lives as Christ followers during the Christmas season. And I want you to understand that it's not just me seeing this. Jesus Christ himself draws our attention to this idea in Luke 24. And so please turn there with me to Luke 24. If you don't have a Bible, pick up one of the pew Bibles. It's the red book in front of you. And Luke 24 is on page 1,125. And what we're going to find here in Luke 24 is that Jesus Christ has just risen from the dead, and those who loved Him very much are still trying to figure out what in the world has really happened. And you can read that in the first 12 verses of Luke 24. You can go back and read that at your homes today. In verse 13, and this is where we're going to be, we're going to find two men walking the road to Emmaus. They are going home from the Passover, and they're discussing what they saw happen in Jerusalem. Specifically, what happened to Jesus Christ at His crucifixion. Specifically about how some of His disciples said that He rose from the grave. These men are disciples and they're walking back from Passover. And so let's start listening in on their conversation in chapter 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them... We're going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. 
And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. And moreover, some women of our company amazed us, and they were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went on to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but to him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now I want you to listen really closely to verse 27. Verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus points out to these men that all the scriptures at that point in time, which was just the Old Testament, laid out a path, a route, like a road trip on a map about the things concerning him. He told them, you don't understand. This has been revealed to you. Everything that has happened, you could have seen in scripture. And Jesus points out that God's plan to provide a way of salvation from sin through him could be seen throughout the Old Testament. And then we see a few verses further on after Jesus reveals who he is to the two men as they traveled down the road. They made this comment about Jesus. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us about, uh, on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I pray this series will help you, this Advent series will help you understand the same burning that these men had. I hope that your hearts will burn when you see the wonder of God's plan of salvation that He's laid out for us. I hope it, it opens your eyes and makes Christmas something that maybe has never been to you before. Just like it had been for these men. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you and we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds as we look at Scripture and how you have laid it out to show us our need for a Savior and that you sent a Savior. Lord God, we ask and pray that this would impact us so much that our Christmas this year in 2022 would be different than any other Christmas that we've experienced. I pray that what we see over the next few weeks would help our hearts burn. Burn with the, the, the joy about the grace and the mercy that you've had towards us and your plan. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we started this series and we asked the question, does mankind need a Savior? We began to answer that question using the idea of a roadmap in the town of Paradise. We know that place as the Garden of Eden. 
We looked at creation event, and we saw that throughout, creation, throughout the creation event, God made sure that we understood that what He created was good. And He summed up, and we looked at this last week, His work at the end of chapter 2, and He called His creation very good. Do you remember what we said about that statement? This is God, almighty, majestic, all-knowing, everywhere present, all-powerful God. He said, what I have done is very good. How good was that? Think about that. We say perfect, but how perfect? We can't even comprehend that perfection. We've never experienced that perfection. Who are the only two people who have ever experienced that perfection? Adam and Eve. They were placed in this very good creation. Everything was perfect. Perfect relationship with each other. Perfect relationship with God. Perfect earth. Perfect animals. Perfect fish. Perfect air. Perfect earth. Everything was absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt perfection from God's point of view. And there's no way for us to even begin, as I said, to comprehend that perfection that God ended His creation with when He said it's very good. And then we continued on our road trip last week, and we came to the town of Rebellion. The town of Rebellion. And this brought us to Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve rebelled against God's first moral command. And we find that command in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you shall eat of it, and you shall surely die. That was the first moral command that God ever used. And that is the first time we see in the Scriptures the word command used. And we know what happened. Most all of us here understand that Adam and Eve rebelled against that moral command. They disobeyed God. Their rebellion plunged the entire human race into sin and cursed all that God had called very good. Do you understand the difference there? We have very good, a perfection that we could not even, and we still cannot even comprehend, and it immediately changed to something that was very, very bad. Sin entered the world. Death entered the world. Spiritual death entered the world. The burden on creation entered the world. Loss of innocence between Adam and Eve came into the world, and man's separation from God came into the world. Do you understand the contrast between Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Genesis chapter 3. And to help us ponder all everything that we looked at last week, we gave what was called a family catechism to everybody. And I'm just going to read through this. Question number one that we looked at last week, does mankind need a Savior? The answer, two parts. Mankind, because of their sin, has lost communion with God, are under His wrath and curse, and are spiritually dead. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through, all one, through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So we understand that we have lost communion with God. Second part of the answer, because of this, mankind in this wretched state is completely alienated from God. I'm going to read from Romans again, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. So the question, does mankind need a Savior? The answer, mankind because of their sin has lost communion with God, are under His wrath and curse, and are spiritually dead. 
Because of this, mankind in this wretched state is completely alienated from God. Third part of the answer, therefore mankind is in great need of a Savior. That's where we left it last week. We're in the town of rebellion with mankind in great need of a Savior. As we continue our Advent road trip, we find ourselves still in the town of rebellion. It is fortunately time for us to leave this sober town and travel to the town of promise. The town of promise. It is in this town that we will answer our next question. Has God promised to send a Savior? We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we need a Savior. No doubt. All of mankind needs a Savior. Not part of mankind. Not a little section of mankind. Every person that has been born since the fall, since Genesis chapter 3, is in great need of a Savior. And there is no hope for them. That is a dark and dreary place to be. And that's why we named that town Rebellion. And we need to go on, move on from there. We need some hope. And has God promised to send a Savior? And the answer to that question brings great comfort because we're going to find out today that, yes, God has promised to send a Savior. And this affirmative answer, this yes answer, brings even more hope when we see that God promises a Savior for mankind even while He was dealing with Adam and Eve's rebellion in Genesis. So on our road trip, as far as biblically, we have not even moved outside of Genesis yet. This is all leading up to the babe in the manger whom we call what? The Savior of mankind. This helps us get the big picture. So everybody turn to Genesis 3.15. And we're going to be in the part of chapter 3 where God has met up with Satan and Adam and Eve in the garden. That starts at verse 8. Starts at verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. Understand, this is the first time they ever hid themselves. Their perfect relationship with God was where? Gone. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he, God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave me uh, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so immediately you see the relationship between man and woman has completely disintegrated because now in this situation, in this broken state, in this sinful state, we have them pointing at each other when God says, what's going on? How quickly did their perfect relationship deteriorate? They threw each other under the bus at God's feet. And now God is going to say, okay, here are the consequences of this. Verse 14, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, curse you are above all, all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then down in verse 16, he talks to the woman about her consequence. And then down on verse 17, we see him talking to Adam about his consequence. But we are going to focus and stay in the curse to, to Satan, specifically verse 15. Look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So what does enmity mean? What does enmity mean? 
Enmity means a deep animosity towards someone. A deep animosity towards someone. And God is saying, understand this, God is saying to Satan in the first part of verse 15 that I just read, if you think you've won the entire human race, you are wrong. There's going to be an animosity between you and Eve. The one you deceived is not going to want to be anywhere around you anymore. There's a deep animosity. You think Eve, understanding exactly what has happened to her now, understanding the destruction of her relationship with God, understanding the destruction of her relationship with her husband, you think she's going to want to be anywhere around Satan? No. There's going to be a deep animosity between you and Eve. And it doesn't stop there. There will be a deep animosity directed towards you from her descendants. Everybody that descends from her, there's going to be a deep animosity. You will not ultimately, Satan, rule them. You will not have the whole human race. And that is what God is saying when he says there will be enmity. You have not won, even though you think you may have won. He's saying to Satan, Adam and Eve did choose to love you and hate me. They chose to doubt me and believe you. But look at verse 15. What are the first two words he says? I what? Will. I will. And God is saying, I will. In my plan, in my time, create enmity between you and their offspring. God is is promising here that he will provide a way of salvation for mankind. I will put animosity between my people and your people. And nobody's going to stop that. For this to happen, there must be a radical transformation of the human heart. There must be a deep, deep change in the human heart to turn man back to God, and only God can bring that change about. One commentator put it this way, the old Adam must die, and a new Adam must be born. The old Eve must die, and a new Eve must be born. A new Adam and a new Eve, a new man and a new woman, and new men and new women who hate Satan and love God instead of loving Satan and hating God. And God is saying, that change will come because he said, I will put enmity between Eve and her seed. It is in this one verse that we see the seeds of regeneration being planted. We see the seeds of regeneration planted. And regeneration is this idea of dead hearts being made alive again through the salvation of God. We are spiritually dead. All men are spiritually dead, which we looked at last week, because of Adam and Eve's sin and because of our own sin. We are dead spiritually. And it's God who's going to have to make us alive again. There will be some, God is saying, that will be totally so transformed that they will love God and despise Satan. And he's not done in verse 15 yet. Not only do we see that God plans to provide salvation for mankind, but we also see that God is going to do this through a promise of a Savior, a specific person. And look at the last part of 15. And he, one person, shall bruise your head, offspring of hers. He goes from the plural offspring to the singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There will be one specific man God will bring salvation to mankind through. And Satan believed that. You know how we know that Satan believed that prophecy? Thousands of years after this, when Herod found out that Jesus was born, what did Satan have Herod do? Killed all the infants two years old and under. What was Satan trying to do? Stop this prophecy. 
kill the Messiah, kill the Christ child before he ever could grow up. Satan understood this. And we see Satan trying over and over and over either to kill the Messiah or to stop the Messiah from being born. And he has failed every time. He has failed every time in his attempt to kill God's chosen Savior of mankind. God's Savior would be in God's time. He would crush Satan's head. And here we see that, a prophetic declaration of utter defeat of Satan by God's chosen Savior. And you want to know who benefits from that? You and I. This is all part of the Christmas story. This is all part of God's plan. This is all part of the route that God has laid out. And we see the seeds of it. We're not even out of the third chapter of Genesis, and we see God beginning to lay this all out. We're seeing God promise this and to prophesy this. It says that Satan would bruise this Savior's heel. And it refers to a non-fatal blow, but ultimately God's Savior will be victorious. He will crush his head. And you want to know something that's amazing about the rest of the Bible? You want to know what's amazing about the rest of this book right here? Starting in Genesis chapter 3, all the way through the end of the last chapter of Revelation, is God revealing to us how this prophecy is going to take place. Have we seen some of the prophecy taking place? Absolutely. We see, we see God creating a, a nation for Himself, a people for Himself. We see God uh, narrow from Abraham's line to the Davidic line. And then we see uh, the Davidic line goes down to, to Judah. And we see that this one person is going to be born on, on what we call Christmas Day. And it's the Christ child. It is the fulfillment or the partial fulfillment of everything all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. I want you to understand that Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is not the end of this revelation or is not the end of the idea being presented here that God has made a prophetic statement that this Christ is going to come. Jeremiah 23 verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be what? Saved. This is referring back to what? My people, I'm going to save them. Satan, you are not going to have them. And he says, I'm going to raise up from the line of David this person, this Savior, who is going to rule righteously forever and save my people. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. And then we see in Micah, chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Behold, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she is who is in she who is in her labor has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell what? Is that salvation? That God's people will, do, will what? Dwell in a secure, safe place because they are his people. And for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Do people who do not have the salvation of God, do they have peace? No, they do not. They do not live in peace. 
Do they live in security? Absolutely not. And here, God, we see in Micah, a minor prophet saying, out of Bethlehem is going to be this king, this ruler who is going to save his people. Who's going to save his people. We see in Luke chapter 1, verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. We saw this last week. What does Jesus mean? Yahweh, which is God, saves. That's what it means. And so here he tells Mary that you're going to bear a son, a son that is conceived supernaturally, and you are going to name him Yahweh saves. What does that refer back to? All the way back to Genesis 3 when God, Yahweh, says what? I will send a Savior and he will crush your head, Satan. You will only bruise his heel. And then we see in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, For unto you, born this day in the city of David, a what? A Savior. Do we all need a Savior? Have we begun to understand that He has not only said that we need a Savior, but He is also doing what? Promising to send a Savior for us. And we understand that this Savior is Jesus Christ, and we're going to see more come back next week, and we're going to look at what Scripture says, how we know absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is the promised Savior from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We're going to see that next week. We've got a couple more. Acts chapter 13, verses 21 through 23, and then they asked for a king, and here Paul is reflecting back on what Israel did, and they asked for a king. And then God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he removed him because he was a, a rebellious king, he raised up David to be their king, of whom, whom he, God, testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, from David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior and Jesus as he promised. And not only do we see the word Savior there, but we also understand the word Jesus means what? So basically we say, brought Israel to Israel a Savior, Yahweh saves. We have a promise of a Savior. And finally in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. What does redeem mean? to buy back. And what were we bought back out of? Our sin. Who bought us back? The prophesied Savior, Jesus Christ, from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Christmas is the celebration of God keeping His promise to send a Savior to redeem mankind from their sin. And we know now that the Savior is Jesus Christ, the babe in the manger, And so before we end our time together this morning, let me ask you one more question, one that is an important question. Why would God promise a Savior to a rebellious mankind? Why would God provide a Savior to a rebellious mankind? This is a question that must not be lightly reflected upon. It is really an important question when we see it in light of Adam and Eve and all of their offspring throughout what Adam and Eve and all their offspring have done throughout the ages. Mankind has rebelled against God. 
the holy, righteous, sovereign creator of the universe. Mankind has rebelled against the one who created them perfect in a way that we cannot even begin to grasp. And because of mankind's rebellion, all of creation is no longer very good. Think about that. Think about the contrast between Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. And mankind's rebellion destroyed all of that. And because of this rebellion, because of this outrageous rebellion, mankind in and of himself has no redeeming value to God. We cannot save ourselves. We are spiritually dead, destined for physical death, destined for death in hell for all of eternity because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden. That is why we need a Savior, and that is why God says, because you cannot save yourselves, I am going to provide a Savior for you. I'm going to give you a Savior, and nobody is going to be able to stop me, not even Satan himself. So why should God promise a Savior to those who rebelled and chose to love Satan and themselves more than the one who created them? Why should God have saved you? Think about this. How many of you have rebelled against God? How many of you have rebelled repeatedly against God? How many of you, when you look at your own sin in the mirror and have it all laid out before you, even want to look at yourselves? And God, the Holy One of God, has come to save us. And God says, I will provide that Holy One and I will save you. When there is no redeeming value in you, when there is nothing to draw yourself to me, there is nothing you can do, I am going to provide it for you. Why did He do that? John 3.16 For God did what? So loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Why did God provide a savior to rebellious mankind because he loved you he loved me that is why he provided a savior we didn't deserve it there's no redeeming value in us it was only by god's love that we are saved through his son jesus christ romans chapter 5 verse 8 but god showed his what love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still what? Worthy? While we still worked really hard? No, while we were still sinners, utterly dead to ourselves, dead to God, dead to life and eternity. We were still sinners. And God said, I will provide a Savior even when you don't realize yet that you need it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Again, we need to go back and not just pass over. Who is saying that God has a great love for us? God is. So let's go back to that whole idea of who God is. What does it mean when God says He has a great love for you? How big is that love? How all-encompassing is that love? How infinite is that love? To a point where we can't even grasp, we cannot grasp the idea of great love from God. It is too big. 
And he says, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He says, I have loved you so much, I'm going to provide a Savior for you, and it's only by my grace, it is only by my mercy that I'm going to bring you out of the death that sin has caused in your life and all the life of mankind. One last one, 1 John 4, 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or the payment for our sins. Oh, let's not miss out on this on this Christmas. The babe in the manger and everything that he represents and knowing that he is the Savior who 33 years after he was born is going to die on the cross for us and offer us his life for ours and he's going to be resurrected so that we know that our sins are forgiven. All of that kind of stuff is just one part of the travel. All of that stuff is set up starting in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 right after mankind completely rebelled against God. That's what Christmas is. It's all of it. And we just have the opportunity on a holiday to sit back and reflect on it. And that is why we are doing the catechism, because we don't want you to leave here on any of the Advent Sundays just hearing it and walking out and forgetting about it. We want you to reflect on it. We want your family to reflect on it. We want you to just read through these things as a family. And if you have children that can read, get them involved in it. So that we don't forget how big this salvation is. How big this babe in the manger really is that covers time and generations. We don't want Christmas to just be about the babe in the manger. It's about all of God's plan that makes the babe in the manger special, different, and our predicted, prophesied Savior. From chapter 3 of Genesis, the rest of the Bible, as I said, is the record of God's love, grace, and mercy toward those who rebelled against Him. From Genesis 3 to the final days recorded in Revelation, we find God appealing to sinners to repent of their sin, to come to Him as the one who loves them and will forgive them and will show mercy and grace to them. God, throughout the Bible, we see Him over and over and over saying, come to me. And one of the things that when we went, to Revel, went through Revelations that just stood out for me in Revelation over and over and over and we see God saying what? Come to me. Believe in me. You see the angels going across in the heavens telling people to repent. Even through the last days God is calling mankind to repent because he loves them so much. Why did God promise a savior to rebellious mankind? To everyone who is here this morning, why did He promise a Savior? Because He loves you. Because He loves you. Reflect on that and ask yourself this. Have I responded to God's love by accepting the gift of salvation He has provided through His promised Savior, Jesus Christ? Ask yourself again this. Have I responded to God's love by accepting the gift of salvation He has provided through His promised Savior, Jesus Christ? Or am I still separated from God, spiritually dead, doomed to be the object of His wrath for all of eternity because of my rebellion? Which way do you stand before God? 
where do you stand before Him this morning? And I want you to understand something. That if you understand that God has opened your eyes and you understand what Christmas really means and you're getting a better understanding that as we go through our travelogue here uh, in this Advent season, this is a time, this is a, a right now throughout this week and all the way up through Christmas and throughout the rest of the year, we need to praise God with everything we are each and every day because He provided a Savior when we didn't need it or when we needed it and we didn't want it. He provided a Savior when we couldn't save ourselves. If that is where you stand and you understand that you're saved, you have so much, no matter what goes on in your life, to praise God about each and every day because every breath you take is a breath that's going to last for all of eternity because you're not going to die. But if you're not on that side, if you haven't come to that place, then that can change today. That can change today. When you come to a place where you say, I understand who I am. I understand what happened between Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. And I am of the old Adam. There is nothing I can do. I am lost and I need Jesus Christ as a Savior. Or I need a Savior and I'm beginning to learn that Jesus Christ is that Savior. If you're there, that can change. Come and talk to me. Talk to somebody else in the audience here, uh, somebody, a, a deacon or, or somebody that you know claims to be a Christ follower. Let them help you understand even more about what it means to become a Christ follower and how to do that. If you're starting to feel that, if, if God is beginning to open that dead heart and make it spiritually alive again, then please do something about it. Don't just sit there and walk out the door and forget about it this next week. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for this time in your word. I thank you for the comfort we have knowing that we are not lost in the town of rebellion, that we can see that you wanted to save us, that you provide salvation, provided salvation for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord God, I ask and pray that this sermon, this time together would be something that would make this Christmas different. In Christ's name, amen.